55 no challenges remaining i'm ben rothenberg joined as always by courtney to win the u.s open has just ended how are you doing courtney tired it's been a long u.s open it's the problem is is that it's been a long u.s open and there haven't been like things to really get excited about so it just has felt like kind of a two-week slog at least to me here's my thing with this u.s open i think except for the finals which were matches people wanted to see matchups People wanted to see between Serena Azarenka and Nadal Djokovic. It was a tournament of like tremendous almosts. Like there were so many storylines that almost got to be really cool and didn't. Agreed. Like, start from the beginning. Start from like Vicky Duval. Vicky she got, Duval. She got one big win. That was cool. But then there was nothing else. And she was like yep. ready to be a thing. That was very, very yep. ready. Then move forward a little bit to Venus. Venus goes out second round, too, after she hits a big first round win. Then move on to, like, Federer and Nadal, first ever U.S. Open meeting. Federer goes out with a very easy opponent that would have given him, put him in that match. Going out in straights through Bredo. Then who comes next? Serena Sloan happened, but it was kind of... it was. I think Serena Sloan was fine. I don't have any problem with that. Serena Sloan was fine, but the problem with Serena Sloan meeting in the fourth round is that you couldn't really get excited about Sloan. Right. No, that's true. It's- so this is like her home slam. This is her coming back. I mean, she has an opportunity to crack into the top 10, an opportunity to take take out Serena if, if that was in the cards, but a lot of opportunity. And you couldn't really get amped about her because you kind of knew that, well, she's probably going to lose to Serena in the fourth round. So she doesn't actually have a chance to win the title. Same way that, you know, even with like a Jamie Hampton, all those like the top three Americans being drawn at the same quarter made it kind of like, well, we'll just focus on Serena because, you know, Jamie's probably not going to get past Sloan. Sloan's probably not going to get past Serena. So that kind of deflated the women's side a bit. Right. More, more more, almost just to bring up. Like, Isner has this big win over Malfi's. He's really playing well. He goes right. out in a pretty quiet match to Cole Schreiber in a very sort of let downy way. Um, it's not a, not a fun match for him to go out. Then you get, like... Tim Smichek being the last American guy left, looking like he's this weird, very obscure Cinderella, and he plays really well, but then loses to Grand Oliers, which is not that exciting a result. Then, Allison Risk. Allison Risk. Allison Risk. I actually barely got to watch any of Allison Risk during this tournament, but yeah, she made it fourth round and then beating Kvitova. Beating Kvitova, and she took a set off of uh, who was it? Ivanovich. No, Antikova. So. Antikova took a set yes, off Antikova. Yes, <laughs> Okay. Yeah, the rain delayed match. Right. Took a set off Antikova. And then you had the Bryans. The Bryans were getting close to this uh, calendar slam and losing the semis. Yeah, I don't know. It was just a lot of things that started it up was. and didn't, it didn't get going. Like I said, I think the finals were awesome, but the rest of the tournament, not so much. And we're talking about this. We haven't really talked about this tournament. So we're, it's, it's interesting sort of feeling out each other's opens here. I haven't seen you in a while. I know. So I left the open, what was it, Monday? Mm-hmm. Second Monday? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I left, I was there for seven days and I took off uh, to head home. And Ben has obviously been there the entire time as a proper journalist. You just reminded me that this tournament had a third Monday, by the way, which is too it many did. Mondays. Too many Mondays. Too many Mondays. That should be a New Order song. <laughs> I don't mind the French Open method of starting on a Sunday, but this idea of having a Monday final at 5 p.m. It's like that's a planned time slot. It's absolutely ridiculous and stupid. It's Who does that benefit? Who does that time work for? Nobody. Nobody. No Nobody. 
dumb. I totally agree. I mean, if they want to have Arthur Ashe Kids Day on Saturday and start the tournament on Sunday, like the French do, mm-hmm. and then shoot for a Sunday final, all power to them. Yeah, Fine. It's it. still stupid, and it's dumb. I don't think it's because stupid. You shouldn't I don't think need... it is. No. no, I don't. I No, I don't think that you should need more than 14 days to complete a tournament. I disagree. Like, I, de- I just think that you should be able to start on Monday and you should get it done by Sunday. That's not a big deal. I think Sunday is a big value add. The first Sunday lets people come who can't get off work to come on the weekends, an extra weekend day of tennis. It's a big day for people to stay home and watch on TV, putting on the weekend. I love the French schedule. I think it's awesome, actually. That's fair. No, I, I can see it from that perspective of like actually having like good matches going on Sunday and actually providing value to ticket holders. I mean, yeah. the way that the French do it... At least a couple of times that I've been there and have seen them do it, they put absolutely shit matches on the first Sunday. It's a joke. It's not worth the the money that you pay to get in. Like, it's just ridiculous. So, like, if they want to actually treat it for real, like, Sunday is, like, the first day of the tournament in the same way that they, the Americans do at the U.S. Open, which the first day of the tournament this year had Serena, Roger, Rafa, and Venus as well. I yeah. mean, that was major, and that was on a Monday. They want If they're willing to shift that to a Sunday, and especially at the U.S. Open, where the Sunday is basically closed. Right, yeah. Like, you know, like, public, as far as I know, the public isn't actually allowed on the grounds on Sunday. That's correct. So if that's the case, go ahead. Open it up, sell tickets, sell them at full price, and provide a, a, a ticket that is of actual value, and then avoid the risk of an Andy Murray being absolutely pissed about having to start his tournament on a Wednesday. Win-win for everybody. I feel like he was pissed, but I feel like he got asked so many questions about it. And he was, obviously, he, you know, he started it himself. But I feel like it's not that big a deal. It was going to be somebody who was going to draw the short straw on that. It just happened to be him. But you know what? It's always going to be him. Always going to be him. Why? Because he's the odd man out of the big four. I mean, you look at, uh, like, a Roger. When is, like, a top seven seed that's not American, like, play almost all of his matches on Ash? And the only reason he was on Armstrong was because of freaking rain. It had nothing to do with, like, his stature. I think Djokovic like, and- is the odd man out. Of the big four, like of the of big four. No, you're absolutely wrong. You're absolutely wrong. We're disagreeing a lot already. This you, is I know this is awesome, actually. <laughs> there's like no way that a tournament director is going to go to the number one player in the world and say, like, even back when like Vika was like ranked number one, like she wasn't getting shafted completely on court assignments, and maybe that was to the detriment of the tour. But you weren't going to go to the number one player in the world and say, like, yeah, we're going to put you on the number two court. Because we're going to put, like, the number seven or the number four or the number three, like, on, like, the main court because fans like them more than you. First off, You're just not going to say that. First off, Vika got put on Armstrong and stuff plenty when she was number one. Secondly, yeah, but that's because of Caroline. Oh, well, maybe. Secondly, <laughs> secondly, problem for Murray was that he got put, I think being Wednesday day would have been okay, but Wednesday night just sort of was more annoying to him. And well, the reason the- that happened is because the stupid... Dutra Silva Pospisil match, which was going to be Rafa's opponent. Rafa was scheduled to be the Wednesday night guy, but they weren't going to make Dutra Silva and Pospisil play three days in a row. They would have had to because their match got rain delayed. Yeah. yeah, no, I know that. I'm just saying that like it's a completely ridiculous schedule for Andy Murray to have to handle. And obviously, we're, I mean, we're talking about hours here. We're not talking about like, oh, he was screwed by like five days or whatever. But do you think it's why he lost? No, not at all. Okay. Not at all. But to the extent that, like, those things that are already kind of, like, putting you off and stressing you out from the beginning of the tournament, like, bother you or linger. I mean, it's your fault for letting them linger, but they shouldn't be there in the first place. You know what I mean? Like, is a fair argument. I mean, I think that he had no business playing the night match on a Wednesday. I mean, if you look up the schedule on the website as to what 
is supposed to be going on on the Wednesday night. Right, no, I know. It's supposed to be a second round match. Yeah. It's not supposed to be a first round match. And you know what? To be quite honest, if I'm the tournament organizers, I don't give a crap. I schedule those guys three days in a row. You schedule uh, Dutra Silva? Dutra Silva and, and Pospisil three days in a row. Tough crap. Well, that's, I do. that's just blatantly unfair, though, to them. I'm, I'm going to screw over my number three seed defending champion to protect a couple of guys who are like ranked outside of the well i mean like i said i don't i don't think he was screwed over i think that he just drew the short straw and it's not why he lost if he if no one thinks that's why he lost i'm not saying that it's why he lost that's not the point but the point is like if you're going to put out a schedule that says on wednesday night you're going to get a second round men's match so you've already locked yourself into that schedule and then you call this audible and pretend like oh what no this is totally normal that's a bit ridiculous, like, for everybody involved, for everyone involved. What would their other option have been? It would have been, like, doing something, like, putting a guy who wasn't in at all because of the Pospisil thing. And, like, it would have been putting somebody else in a night match again. It would have been, like, bad. It would have been, like, a bad men's night match. It would be, like, here's a night match starring, I don't know, um, I don't even know who's in that part of the draw. Like, Cole Schreiber versus, who did he play? I don't know. Some second round match that nobody cares about. There were very few options left. So they, they told Murray who was going to play then because they wanted a big guy in the night match. I don't know. Anyway. Well, it's up to you. Do you want to screw over a couple of guys who are lower ranked that Rafa's probably going to roll over anyway? Or do you want to screw over your defending champion? And I do not think the decision had any effect on... Right. I don't think he was screwed over. I disagree with the assertion that Eddie Murray think... was being screwed over. That's all no, I'm saying. I... Well, there's no assertion that I'm making that that is the case. I'm saying from the integrity of the tournament, like if you are going to say that you're going to put on second round matches on that day, then you put on second round matches during that session and you put Andy Murray during the day. And I'm sorry that you went and and because of the weather screwed you over that you have to go put on a shitty match, but that's on you. That's not on the player and shifting the burden onto the player to have to like sell your tournament because you screwed up or the weather, you know, there's some act of God that, that created the situation is baloney. I, I don't buy that. And I think that, you know, Andy should have played during the day. The schedule should have been held the way that it, it was held. It was balones. I, 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 I just, I, disagree. I, I don't. I see your balones and call it a non-issue. Fair enough. So there you you're go. welcome to do so because you're the host. But, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Courtney, Courtney earlier, to clarify that, was referring to herself not as the co-host of this show, but as just a guest. The guest who happens to be on every single episode. And talks more than half the time. So that's fine. Because who wants to listen to you talk by yourself? Like for like multiple episodes. I'm thinking of the people. <laughs> and I'm like, well, what's the option? Either I hop in here and kind of like provide a buffer. Right. Or I let Ben sit with a microphone for an hour and 15 minutes. That's not going to work for people. It wouldn't be great. No one, no one would, it would it, it would be illuminating. But it, <laughs> it might get Ben in trouble in a lot of <laughs> illuminating. ways. Illuminating. Okay. We'll stick with that. <laughs> So let's start with the match that just happened today. We're recording this late Monday night. Courtney, what did you make of the men's final and Rafael Nadal winning his 13th Grand Slam and his second U.S. Open? Tremendous result for Rafa. Mm -hmm. Amazing. Undefeated on hard court. You know, he's the guy that has two slams. Everybody else has has one slam, Novak and Andy. He's clearly going to get the the year-end number one before the year's over. Clearly. So long as he plays the fall. So, you know, awesome awesome by him. Great. But to me, the, the story of the finals is really Novak. I wrote in my previews on Sports Illustrated about the final that that my biggest concern and why I thought that like Novak despite being number one and despite everyone and myself included believing that he is the 
best hardcore player, that he was going into the final as the underdog. And a lot of that had less to do with tactics, because tactically, I think that he can solve Rafa and surface and all these sorts of things. But it was really more of a mental issue. And I, I just really feel that one of the most underlooked trends or stories throughout the year has been Novak's inability to pull out tight, important matches. Yeah, I would agree. He's blown a ridiculous number of leads where he had no business doing that. He's he's had momentum and just squandered it for no reason. I mean, you can you can really date it back to his loss to Del Potro in Indian Wells. He had a three-love lead in the third. Blew that. Right. He lost to Dimitrov in Madrid. You know, stormed back to take the second set. Totally had, you know, fired up and everything. Dimitrov's cramping and he can't put the kid away. That's confusing. You know, Rome... He was he had a lead or at least took the second set off of Burdick, lost that match. French Open had a lead on Rafa in the fifth, lost that match. I mean, the guy just blows leads. It's yeah. kind of weird and hasn't been clutch. And so I think that with respect to how the final played out, it was a lot of the same. I mean, Novak really outplayed Rafa. I mean, you set us you set the fourth set aside, but the second and third set was all Novak, and Rafa had no business winning that third set, yeah. none whatsoever. And Novak, you know, just kind of let it go. He had that triple break point at four four, couldn't do anything about it. Just it's kind of all the same and so that's really my concern and that's really my takeaway from the final i mean rafa played great he got it fantastic great season applaud 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 but my concern is with the world number one yeah i think that's probably about right i think i've talked about that a bunch when i was talking to various people about the final and djokovic about it i mean he's now six and six in grandstand finals which doesn't sound bad but that's not like all-time great numbers whatsoever that's not rising to the occasion. And if you take out 2011, which is obviously unfair, that magical year of his, he's three and six. And against Murray in Wimbledon this year and US Open last year, there are just times where he felt like he wasn't winning the big points ever. He just couldn't sustain things. He's been so up and down. And uh, that's something he needs to fix if he's going to be the top guy again. I mean, he's going to win more slams. He's he's Absolutely. he's so consistent a player. He keeps putting himself in the last four He's going to keep doing it. But do I think he's had a disappointing year? In a lot of ways, yeah. And for somebody who stayed all-to-wall number one the whole year, winning one slam and having it be Australia, honestly, is not that impressive. And he hasn't won a title since Monte Carlo. Yeah. Monte Carlo was impressive. Monte Carlo was ridiculously impressive. I mean, the way that he won. But, you know, the guy hasn't won since then and hasn't really been impressive against a top player since then, really. No. Right? I mean, if you think about it, he's rolling against anybody who's ranked outside the top 20. And then when he has to play like a top 10, top 15 is when he struggles. And, and when the match is tight, he's just not coming through. And obviously, I mean, the curse for Novak is that everybody's always going to compare how he's playing now to how he played in 2011, which is totally unfair because 2011 was like an anomaly and, and probably one of the, I mean, not probably, but was one of the greatest, if not the greatest uh, tennis season ever. But he's just not being clutch. And for him to not be able to pull out that third set against Rafa today, and then on top of that, really just go away in the fourth, mm-hmm. just really disappear, that that was pretty disappointing. I mean, I, I you know, this is a guy who's who's battled back on comebacks against, like, Federer, like, you know, 2-1 down, and, you know, against Murray in Shanghai last year. Like, he's kind of used to that, and he just kind of gave up. Yeah, that's all right. Let, let's, talk, let's talk about Rafa, Courtney. Obviously, there's a very clear narrative with Rafa about his miraculous comeback from seven months off and he never thought he could play again and such and such and 
he's now had the best year of his career. And I sort of asked, I asked him in press sort of a little bit just about that, like, I don't know if there's a disconnect there about him talking about the hardcourts killing him. And then he's talked about it before, obviously. This is a question he gets asked all the time. Like, how are you having your best year in hardcourts now? And I don't know. The whole the whole thing is just, it's just weird to me. Is it weird to you still this year for Rafa? Or how, what do you make of it? I don't think it's weird at all. Okay. You know, I mean, the reason that he's playing so well on hard courts is because in a lot of ways he has to not in terms of like he has to play well but he has to play the way that he's playing Mm. which is hyper aggressive stepping in cutting off angles hugging the baseline going for winners on his forehand side running around his backhand these are all things that rafa has to do to a be successful on hard courts but b also protect his body on hard courts and i think that that's kind of something he's very very mindful of so i mean i, I don't know i mean I, I read his uh kind of response in his press conference about why he's playing well so well on hard courts and he said you know it's nothing that i've changed like you guys want to say that i've changed something like that's the like instinct is for writers to say here is the thing that he's changed that has like made him successful but rafa said you know like it's it's not that i've changed anything i'm just playing well which is maybe an oversimplification because clearly as anybody who's watched him sees he's being ridiculously aggressive yeah, by far the most aggressive he's ever been on hard by far right by far no doubt about it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's been an, obviously an impressive run. And for him to beat Novak twice on hard courts now, both in a best of three and a best of five, that's pretty darn impressive. So here's the question I got asked several times as well today. Mm. Now that Rafa has 13, will he equal or pass Federer? Yes. I think so too now. I, I just don't think that Roger's going to win another one. No, definitely not. I would be surprised. I would be shocked. And even if he wins another one that brings him to 18... Rafa's at 13. That's five. Rafa's, what is he, 27? Here's the sort of caveat I'll add to that. I think Rafa really kind of needs two next year, though. Okay. I think Rafa can't afford to just win just the French the next two years or something. I think he needs to keep a pretty good pace. But... And it's all down to health for him, basically. Mm-hmm. So Yeah. If I had to bet, put money on it, I would put money on Rafa ending his career with more slam titles than Roger. Okay. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But but that's where my money would go. I might try to get really good odds on getting a push. I'd like a Maybe. push. Push would be nice. A push I could see. A push I could see. But I have to think he's going to get three more Frenches. So that would take him to 16, which means that he just has to get one to two more on the other surfaces, he could do it. I think Wimbledon is looking unlikely the way he's played it. Yeah, I, I, no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put my money on Wimbledon. I, I would actually put it on the hards. I would put it on the Aussie actually. Yeah. You know, go, go in there fresh, you know, no physical issues, confident. He could win the Aussie a couple times. Sure. So the other person who's big numbers, this tournament is Serena Williams, who has, won her 17th Grand Slam title, tying Federer, beating Victoria Azarenka in three sets in the final. She won her fifth U.S. Open, which matches her haul at both the Australian Open and Wimbledon, where she'd also won five times each. Courtney, what did you make of Serena's title run? Uh, really good. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it was it was a Serena title run. It was. I mean, it's tough for Serena because, like, it's very hard for her to impress. If she had... Right. She set the bar so high. If she had beaten Azarenka like one and two, like yeah, okay, that would be like an A plus run for her. But the way it is now, it's it's a solid A, A minus. I would agree with that. I mean, I think that she obviously played well through six rounds. Didn't drop a set. Uh, goes into the final, stresses out. The win didn't help very much, but at the end of the day, got it in the end. So you know, what's there to complain about or criticize? I mean, she's. We all know this. When she plays her best, she is the best player in the world. 
Mm-hmm. And she didn't have to play her best through seven matches, but played pretty darn good. And then against uh, Azarenka, you know, I, I found the the quote that Carlos Rodriguez gave to Scott Price from, from SI about Serena really, really interesting. That he said that, you know, in the tightest moments, that's when Serena is the greatest player in the world. Which is an interesting one, because obviously, I mean, I, I in my head can identify a few times where sure. it's been tight and she's choked. Like the second match of the second set of the final, perhaps. Right, exactly. I mean, her her nerves got the better of her but you know the fact that you have a top coach who's coached her one of her chief rivals for many years and you know now with Lena a rivals kind of saying that or believing that is is quite interesting quite telling about the aura that she has on the tour I think the only two matches that can be remembered for Serena for this tournament are the final which she survived after Azarenka similar to Djokovic kind of fought back to get the match level and then kind of let it go in the final set. But I think the match that I was sort of more interested in a little bit, it was the match against Sloan. Mm-hmm. We talked in the last episode about how it's one of our favorite rivalries in the game and yeah. how we think that all the mind games to play with each other are tremendous. I thought the first set of that match was really, really good. Fantastic. I think it was, I think it. It was like the best set of the tournament. I totally agree. And I think that a lot of people after the match, I think were really, I remember reading, putting down kind of their match being like, Oh, Serena Cruz. It wasn't a match. And I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, but the first set I really thought could have gone either way. Oh, yeah. You know, that was really, I think, a huge credit to Sloan. I thought that she played a great a great first set. I totally fantastic agree. First I set. totally agree. And I totally watched and that was like, yes, yeah, Sloan's going to win slams. The way she played mm-hmm. which was incredible. Totally. I mean, her, her power and her speed, combination of those two things, of the power and the speed. The only person who has that on the tour right now is Serena. Exactly. And so it really was a little bit like seeing Serena play her younger self a little bit style-wise. Baby Serena. Yeah, exactly. And if they don't like each other, I don't care. If they do like each other, I don't care either. But I just thought I thought that was cool for Sloan. And I would have liked to have seen Sloan get a shot at like an Azarenka or a Lina on some different mm-hmm. quarter. Because you felt like while it was really cool to get that match, it would have been cool to see what Sloan could do elsewhere. Exactly. It would have been a cooler match to see in a semifinal or a final you know, and, and to see, to kind of unleash the Americans on everybody else. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I just thought that, that Sloan played a great match and it was, you know, one of those matches that I think that Sloan kind of needed to kind of prove to people. I mean, just generally throughout her, her run at the U S open that the hype is real. Yeah. I think that she proved that actually for me really well against Ula. I mean, yeah, I was going to say Ursula, yeah. she, she killed Ula. She was put in a night match as sort of the headliner in her night match against Ula Redvanska. And that was after she went seven, six and a third against Mandy Manella. And what was what was an unbelievably bad match. Just like Sloan looked terrible. She looked so nervous. She just had no strategy whatsoever. She survived that seven, five in the tie break in the third set. And then she gets Ula, who beat her in Indian Wells this year. And she goes out and kills her six, one, six, one. And she gets Jamie Hampton who's been playing pretty good ball, and she beats Jamie Hampton one and three. So, I mean, the whole thing, it was Sloan taking care of business and not playing down to people's level in a way that she has in the past. And if she can keep that going, she can keep that sort of intensity or focus throughout all of her tournaments, she could definitely be a top eight player very soon. For sure. Let me ask you a question, because I don't think that I've asked you this before, Mm -hmm. which is, do you think that the Sloan-Serena hype is overplayed. In terms of what? In what, what hype? 
I don't know. I mean, I, I just the rivalry kind of, or in terms of the comparisons or what? Both, I suppose. I mean, I, I just kept kind of seeing all these pieces coming up, like propping up over the weekend saying like, oh, you know, the media is making too much of this. It's not that big of a deal of a match. Like Serena's going to cream her. Like, oh. why is everybody, you know, that sort of thing. Like everybody's just hyping it just to like hype it. That sort of thing. Like, do you think that it's overhyped for whatever reason? Or do you think that it's legitimately hyped that when Serena plays Sloan, it is a match that you put down your phone, you turn on the TV and you sit and you watch it. I totally think the latter. I think Sloan Serena matches are awesome. I think their Brisbane match this year was awesome. The quality was really good in that one. The Australian match was, was, a little, yeah. was a little scratchy, but it was still pretty good. I mean, we're talking about two American women who have each, going into the US Open, had each made it to the quarterfinals or better at two of the slams. I mean, so for them to play in the fourth round was a pretty big deal. And you talk about their similar athleticism and the history between them absolutely there's every reason to get excited about this match i don't think this is, they're overhyped at all i don't think that sloan is just another 15 seed i think she's much more than that as a prospect and i think time will look back on this match and say that it was sort of a uh, important one if if, Steven, if sloan had won that match it would have been huge it would have been like an huge. ultimate like torch passing situation to beat Serena be, yeah. on CBS <laughs> you know, all my Labor Day weekend. It would be huge. It would have been insane. I was thinking that as the match got going and got really close, I was like, wow, Sloan could actually win this. This would be seismic. It would be. Yeah. I mean, it would it would be a huge tectonic shift in the American tennis, you know, kind of landscape. And yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you, man. I think that their matches are real. I, I don't think that, honestly, like, I don't think that the media could even overhype it i agree I, we said of, this last time they're the best rivalry and they're the best rivalry and well here's the other question that i had for you do you think that like to the extent that things are made of like their personal whatever rivalry i suppose mm-hmm. or animus if you want to you know swing the needle the other way sure. do you think that that's that's blown out of proportion because i have read things that say that and i'm curious as to know what you think um i don't think that's blown out of proportion no i don't think that those two women get along very well and i think that the, what they bring in there personally affects their on-court matches against each other so no i don't think that's over whatsoever and i think there's more than people know that goes into that i i, I mean no more than when like for whatever reason whenever it's sloan and serena related i think that like for myself like i get like really not annoyed because that's like overstating how i feel about it because i really don't get annoyed yeah. but like just kind of peeved at this notion of like oh well Sloan said this, so it must be true. Or Serena said this, so it must be true. So, like, Serena says, they're totally fine, and it's an honor to watch Sloan. So that's how Serena feels. And Sloan's like, oh, no, we're totally cool. Like, we put it behind us. We, I talked to her in Madrid. We're fine. So, obviously, that is the case. I never really understand, like, why people think that. Because why would you think that in real life? Like, these no. players are not under oath. Exactly. That's the thing. And that's the thing with Sloan, especially. These are not depositions. And Serena, like... a little bit less, is that Sloan... I've said so many different things about Serena over the years, over the two, two years they've been they've known each other really. You can write like any Sloan story you want about how she feels about Serena. No, there are quotes you can fill in for anything, and so it's um it's all over the place. So it's, she's not the most reliable narrator, as we say in literary circles. Not that I'm in literary circles, but you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, but Sloan, Sloan says all sorts of things about Serena, and Serena says these unbelievably saccharine things about Sloan that just don't come off as believable. So, yeah, I think that there's totally, totally ample grounds for thinking there is some animus. Yeah, I, I would absolutely agree with you, and um, I'll leave it at that. All right. 
for the second straight year, Victoria Azarenka finished runner-up at the U.S. Open, once again to Serena Williams, once again in the third set. She seemed much more upset after losing this year's final than last year. I think she had a pretty good self-belief that she could win at this time after having beaten Serena in the finals at both Doha and Cincinnati. And she fought really well to get the second set. Courtney, what did you make of Azarenka's U.S. Open overall? I think that it's about time to retire this, like, kind of really tired argument that, like, Vika isn't and cannot possibly be a rival to Serena. Anyone still still think that? Yeah, no, I got it a lot, like, after uh, Cincinnati. Like, obviously, you were there, Ben, and, and we both asked them quite extensively both Vika and Serena about how they felt about each other in terms of rivals and and whether or not this was a rivalry like you know give them an opportunity to define it like you know I mean I've I know that like for example Maria Sharapova is like my I do not have a rivalry with Serena because I don't win so it's kind of ridiculous if people call it that so I think that we kind of pose the question to to both Vika and Serena and they really embrace the idea that yeah it it is the burgeoning rivalry it is probably the rivalry of the women's game they don't go quite that far they say they say like I guess if you want to call it a rivalry it's fine just essentially giving it its blessing. Right, exactly. But not saying, like, it's not one. And so, but there are a lot of fans who kind of disagree with that. They look at the head-to-heads. They look at the fact that, like, you know, Azarenka's never beaten her at a slam. You know, things like that, which I totally get. Mm-hmm. But I think that one of the, the really impressive things from this this final was just, you know, and I've thought this for a while, that Vika was kind of in Serena's head a little bit. That, that there was kind of this very true... Serena does actually respect her a lot and knows that like Vika is not going to give her anything. And a lot of what she says is not just lip service. She does actually believe it. But throughout the final, I just kind of really felt like, you know, the way that Azarenka fought, the way that she, you know, she broke back from, you know, two set, two breaks down and, and, and took that tie break and forced a third. Like, you know, I will give her a shot against Serena on any hard court. Oh, totally agree. I totally agree. And I think that Vika has really I the only reason I wouldn't put it on par with Serena Sloan's rivalry is I don't think it has at all the off court juice that Serena Sloan has that makes it more of an intriguing, uh, tasty rivalry, quote unquote. I think that in terms of how they match up tennis wise, Azarenka is a very uncomfortable opponent for Serena and doesn't allow Serena to play her best a lot of the times. And Vika said that, oh, we bring out the best in each other <laughs> and someone asked Serena, Oh, do you agree with that statement? Serena was like, I think I bring out the best in her. <laughs> I just sort of left it at that. It was, it, I don't know if it totally translated like in the quote form, but I, I put it in my stories and I was like, yeah, and that's as far as she went. It was, it was pretty that's funny nice. when it happened. So yeah, so there's not quite the overflow of respect there. I mean, Serena at this tournament was very much in her mode that people don't necessarily enjoy where she was like, yeah, you know, if I lose it's because I play bad. And when she, when she and Venus lost to the Silent H's in the double semifinal, <laughs> she was asked like, oh, what, what happened there? And she was like, Oh, you know, I, I was like, I, I think I asked her. It. I was like, oh, they're really like a good team. They won a silver medal. Like, they just got the better you. She was like, yeah, I think we were just miserable, she said. And then she burst out laughing in like very much she won Roman Madrid fashion. And it was uh, something to behold. Anyway, yeah, I do think that she's an uncomfortable opponent for Vika. In this final in particular, the wind really helped Vika because Serena couldn't go for the lines as much as she'd want to. So she played with a little more margin, which kept the ball inside Vika's uh, range of running because one area where Serena really dominates Vika is on foot speed. and Or that's one area also power, but foot speed especially too. And so when she couldn't run her around as much, it got to be a very close match. If it, had been a st- if it wouldn't, hadn't been a factor, I think it wouldn't have been as close. But it was, so it was. And uh, 
Serena and both of them, Nike failing great for that tournament. What were you doing with those dresses? Uh, uh, Serena needed to go horrible. change into some shorts or something. She needed to go without the cat suit, like go, go to a phone booth. and It was awful. It was really affecting the tennis, seriously. Like she was like getting distracted. She should have just thrown on like a, you know, like a long sleeve or something to at least like get something to, to, to keep the skirt aspect of it down. But yeah, that was, that was brutal. I mean, I don't think that Nike, obviously both of their players won both uh, I mean, Rafa and Serena, but wow, it was such a fail. They're not selling outfits that look like they impair you from playing tennis. Like, really, yeah. it was just like, it was not working at all. Yeah, I think that it just looked really bad. And if Serena had lost that match, it would look terrible for her. And like, oh, you got distracted by this dress and you lost the match because of it. That'd be a dumb narrative, I realize, but it would have happened. It would have. Yeah, so, so there you go. For our next segment, I'm just going to name some names of people, Courtney, and I want you to react to their U.S. Opens as briefly or as lengthily as you'd like. I'm going to start with Lena. Good tournament. Good tournament. I mean, I, you know, she's not going to beat Serena. It's unfortunate she got bageled in the first set. But all, all in all, I mean, a lot to build on. And I think that, you know, having that semifinal result at the U.S. Open, a career best, will give her kind of some fire to stay in the game, which is really all I want. Yeah. I just don't want Lena to retire ever. I think that's fair. Next thought comes for Flavia Panetta, the other semifinalist, out of nowhere. Nowhere. And Andiamo Flavia. Somebody had to come out of that quarter I th- or that section. I thought it was going to be Caroline Wozniacki. I'm a dumbass. <laughs> I thought it was going to be Simona Hallett, personally. See, there you go. You went with streak. I went with, like, kind of history and sentiment, I suppose. We were both wrong. And we were both wrong. So, you know, if I had to have somebody prove me wrong, I'm perfectly happy with it being Flavia freaking Panetta. She's a nice who lady. Who is awesome. She's a nice lady. Let's talk about actually somebody she beat. I don't know if you, I think you were still at the tournament when this happened. Talk, let's talk about Sarah Arani. Mm. Sarah Arani, who has not been known for being especially interesting in press ever. <laughs> really, she does. She has a little bit of a Ferrer streak where she tries to say very little a lot of times. Suddenly got like very emo. If, if you can, Courtney, can you explain what what Sarah Arani's exit presser was like? Sarah Arani had some real talk. Yeah. She had a moment where the guard was let down, and Sarah Arani got real. And she showed the true, raw, Arani self, if you will. It was a lot. It was a lot. And it might have been a little too much. Let's let's be honest. But um, basically, you know, she got she got waxed by Panetta in the second round? Yeah. Third round? Three and one. Second round. Weird tournament for Three. her. She goes out and double bagels <laughs> Rogowska in the first round. And then loses three and one to Panetta second round. There you which go. again looks so, much better when you realize that Panetta eventually made the semis. But still. Still. I mean, that that probably shouldn't, I mean, that shouldn't be happening, not in 2013. In 2009, sure, yeah. but not in 2013. And she basically had a press conference that was, that was fairly teary. She was very clear that she was distraught by her result uh, emotionally. And basically just kind of went full bore and said, you know, like, I can't deal with the pressure that this idea that I'm supposed to go out there and if I win, it's no big deal. But if I lose, it's a big deal is kind of paralyzing. I mean, effectively is what she said. So, you know, for, for a top player, I mean, she's top five to, to kind of say that was pretty shocking. Yeah. But at the same time, with it being a Ronnie, I don't think it was surprising because I think that in a lot of ways, that's what we all kind of thought. It totally makes sense. I mean, two years ago, she was outside the top 30, I'm pretty sure at this point. 
I mean, her being a thing wasn't supposed to happen ever. And you see this happen with a lot with the guys. Like, you know, like these players, like whether it's the Verdascos, the Tsarviches, you know, those are the two, Monaco, those are the three names that kind of come Gasquet, to mind. even. Gasquet, but, but people who kind of went on these incredible win streaks to, to kind of make themselves relevant. But we're so used to being journeymen or journeywomen that when they began to lose and had to be hauled into press to, to kind of explain their losses or their failures as they would hear it. And then losing was a headline, yeah. Right. I mean, that that that's a really difficult thing to kind of process if that's just not what you're used to. I mean, as a journey person, <laughs> you can lose. I know. Uh, you can lose and it's no big deal. Like, you know, nobody cares. Nobody cares about you. But to be a player who constantly has to be has to answer for their own failures, that's pretty brutal. And I think that that probably with a Ronnie, it just got and got to that that state where she just kind of couldn't deal with it anymore. She was saying things like she said in Italian press that she thought that making it that the two weeks at Roland Garros as being like the defending finalist killed her. She said she was like, that was terrible. There was so much pressure being there. And I guess the way she went out to Serena probably didn't help either at that tournament. And then, yeah, just saying like, I was, I'm not built for this. I don't enjoy it anymore. I can't fight out there. She said, especially against playing against an Italian, she couldn't, she didn't feel like she could have shattered herself in Italian as much. She had to be, like, polite, and that didn't help her either. Anyway, it was it was messy, and it was a weird sort of insight into Sarah Ronnie, who's honestly someone we don't pay a whole lot of attention to, because she's normally just quiet and goes about her business. And uh, this was not quiet. Yeah, but I will say that I have asked Sarah Ronnie numerous times throughout the last year and a half, like, how are you dealing with the pressure? How What does it feel like to, like, be expected to win? And she shrugged it off, like... The entire time, just being like, I don't think about it. I'm just, you know, kind of the typical stuff. And it wasn't until this press conference uh, at the U.S. Open that she finally kind of let, you know, kind of <laughs> ripped off the bandaid and was like, it bleeds. Yeah. It's so painful. So, again, lesson, don't listen to everything the players say. Like, they're not always being honest. Next name I'm going to throw at you is Victoria Duval adorable right yeah totally would love for her to be a thing but she is a child in like a game that is becoming a woman's game so all of the kind of hype and stuff is should be kind of if you want to hype her because she's just such a, fre- a breath of fresh air totally get it but if you want to hype her because of like i don't know like if you wanted to be really really reductive and simple and really insulting and say, well, you know, she's like, you know, 16, 17 years old and she can be like the next Serena, which how come Allison Risk can't be the next Serena? That doesn't make sense to me. You know, if you want to make it that way, that's kind of selling her in the wrong way. There's, yeah, there's a lot of debate in the press room about how much press Duval was doing because she was doing a lot. She was going she was. on every morning talk show in New York this while she was still she in was the on, tournament. She was on Leno. Then after she lost she in the second Leno. round, she went on Leno. She did a bunch of other stuff. She hung around the tournament, kind of just being there. She was interviewed on ESPN a couple more times, I think, after she lost. I mean, I was fine with her saying, you know, strike while the iron is hot. I get that. But the irons kept kind of started kind of cooling off, and she kept showing up on Leno and stuff. I don't know. It was a lot of press, so I hope that it wasn't too much for her too soon. I hope that she 
doesn't get into Melanie Dan syndrome where she thinks that she's already a big deal and doesn't have to work anymore. I don't that's think risk. that that's gonna. I don't think that's gonna be the case with with Duval. I think that in a lot of ways, I don't begrudge her doing all of those like kind of promotional activities because I think that what was pretty clear when you kind of talked to her was that there were you know finances were an issue with respect to her tennis. Yeah. And hell, if she wants to go and do that whole circuit so that she gets some sponsorships to where she can you know get some money in to like continue to train and better her game i don't really care go do everything that you have to do to kind of do that i'm not really worried about hype you know like at this point make sure that you have the the financial resources to play this ridiculously expensive game to get the coaching that that you need and the training and the equipment all that sort of stuff so that was kind of how i kind of took it because i just don't really get the sense that the devals are that family yeah that's fair to like go and do all of that just like and like have this kid believe her hype i I just that that's just not the sense that i get from that camp so so i wasn't really all concerned with it i was actually quite quite pleased that she was able to you know get some opportunities to kind of tell her 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 story which is amazing and hopefully attract sponsors to to kind of further her professional career i wish her all the best us spongebob fans have got to stick together (laughs) <laughs> next name for you is camilla georgie did we really learn anything new about camilla georgie like as much as like everybody's like oh holy shit like she can hit the shit out of the ball yeah we knew that it just we just didn't hadn't seen it happen on a major stage for two and a half hours it was really good major for, stage presence like she did really well yeah, on night session ash that's, that's a tough environment sure. to win in sure but come on like, I'm not going to sit here and say, like, Camilla Georgie is, like, a future star. Like, you got to, I mean, oh, to play the agree. game that she plays. Dude, to play the game that she plays on a consistent level, she's going to be one of those players that, like, can get, like, a, a huge upset at the slams and not follow it up for her entire career. And that's a good career, but I don't buy it quite yet. Counterpoint, Camilla Georgie is already a star because <laughs> after the, the crowd was in love with her that night. Her press was packed. She barely speaks any English, but she was dressed up. Whoa, dude. I was there at that press conference. It was not quote-unquote packed. Don't try and sell that story. It was packed-ish. Her, her, something about her presence just, it, I don't know, it reminded me of, like, there's something very 80s about her, weirdly. And she was wearing this, like, this weird, like, hair. She had, like, big hair and breasts and, like, it's like, big, puffy, like, white blazer that looked like it had shoulder pads or something. And then, then, then... In her fourth in her fourth round match against Vinci, fans were overflowing for her literally on Grandstand. They were lines waiting to get in to see Camilla Giorgi, and everyone was rooting for her. We are obviously speaking over Skype. Yeah. We are not looking each other in the eye. But are you liter- are you genuinely gonna look me in the eye and tell me that has everything to do with her game and her future prowess as a tennis player? I didn't say it had anything to do with that. I said she was gonna be a star, <laughs> not a slam winner. Different. There we go. Yeah. Okay. No, that's, that's all I'm saying. I'm saying she's gonna be a star. She can be next Kornikova or something. That doesn't that doesn't affect what I'm saying at all. I'm just talking about a star. She's she's lucky if she's the next Kornikova. She's not gonna be Kornikova, but she's gonna she's but she's gonna be, she could be I don't know a uh, Kirilenko. Maybe a Kirilenko, but I still think Kirilenko's better than her. But uh... as a player, yeah, no, but I think I think Pichiorgi, she really really was very popular on Ash that night when she beat Wozniacki, and she played really well. And Wozniacki didn't play that badly. I thought it was impressive. I think a star was born. I really do. Okay. Next name I'm going to throw at you. Easy men's name. Stan Wawrinka. What do you think? Uh, I don't think any, any more or less of him now than I thought of him after the Australian Open. Really? Yeah. You don't think more of him for beating Murray, defending champion in the quarters, and straight easy sets? 
not the way Andy Murray played, no. Okay. Yeah, no. I mean, I think that it was a great run for Stan. I think that he played remarkably well. I think that he absolutely took it to Andy, which was great. He put the pressure on Andy, and Andy couldn't respond. That was fine. I think Andy played an absolutely shit match. There's no way around that. I think that Novak started horribly slow the first three sets of of that semifinal match and really gave uh, Vavrinka an opportunity there. And it's a real, it's a huge shame that 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 Stan picked up that leg injury in the fourth set um, and really kind of wasn't physically able to compete through the remainder of the semi. But, you know, Favrinka is a guy who's got a big game who I genuinely believe can beat 99% of the players on any given day. But there was still, again, what I saw at the Aussie and what I've seen throughout his career kind of cropped up again at the U.S. Open, which was there was this kind of sense of like he was just happy to be there. Yeah. And without that extra hunger, he's not going to kind of cross that barrier. And so I think that within men's tennis and women's as well, there is this line of players who can compete for slams and everybody else. And for me, Vavrinka falls on the side of everyone else, you know, and that's unfortunate because I I can I, I even for me, I, I would put like a Raonich, I would put like an Isner like a guess not well not Gasquet, but a Raonic or an Isner on the side of like can compete for slams but I would put Mavrinka on the other side I just I just don't think that he has kind of the killer instinct to do it I think that this tournament put him in a definite gray area for me I was very impressed with him against Burditch first of all and then Murray beating I mean beating two top five guys and then taking a number one seed to five sets in the semi I think it's an amazing tournament but you can't take it just on paper. Like you have to see how those players played. I think Burdish played fine. I think I think Burdish played fine. I think, I think Andy played like shit. I think Murray and and I think Djokovic played for like shit for like two and a half sets until he kind of finally was able to like he got better as the match went on. But it's not like Stan like it like this match, this five set match at the U.S. Open was nothing compared to the five set match that he played at the Aussie no, against Novak, where Novak played remarkably well. Like that's why I'm saying I don't take. I don't think of Stan any more now than I thought of him at the Aussie. Because after the Aussie, like, I was like, You're, that's awesome what you just did. But this U.S. Open, sorry, I'm not going to give him, like, a huge, like, standing ovation for beating a really shitty Andy Murray in the quarterfinals. No, I disagree. I, I give him a, I give him a, a, a long-seated ovation because I think that he's thrown together good matches against top players in a way we hadn't seen him do it before. I think he absolutely upgraded his stock. It's one thing to push a top guy and lose... In Australia, I realize he played better there than he did here, but it's another thing to come in, match in, match out, deal with growing hype and attention, and respond to it and play pretty well the whole time. And like you said, he had an injury in the fourth that hurt the rest of that summer. He could have won it. Who knows? He could have. Maybe he could have, and it would have been over a really crappy Novak. So, but you know, but he made the he made the finals in Madrid. This isn't like new. Like he beat like two top ten players. I think that's that that tournament. I think he beat like what like Burdick and Sanga to make the finals of Madrid. It's not like it's like completely out of the ordinary. And everybody knows that like Andy Murray is like anybody can beat Andy Murray on any given day, depending on how Andy Murray plays. So I I don't I don't. So on that, I, I think that, I think that you're. No, I I just don't think that like we learned anything new about Bavrinka after this week and a half than we knew from him coming in. Is all that's what I'm saying. I'm not like downplaying like his like accomplishments. I'm just saying like, yeah, okay, that's Stan. Like that's the Stan we knew. I think that he's become more of a threat. He can now be getting into the ter- territory. He can be a a regular slam. Put him in like a Burdich category in slams. I think he's getting closer to that, where he can be like someone who's going to be a dangerous guy to be a quarterfinal opponent if he gets in the 5-8 through eight range of uh, 
to, to place one of those top four guys. I think he absolutely will keep putting himself in the mix in these slams more and more often. He can play well on clay. He can play well on hard. Uh, I think he's going to – we haven't seen the last of him on the final four of slams. And we hadn't seen him ever there before, so I think this is a change in his status. I don't know. The way that Andy Murray played that quarterfinal, if Andy Murray played well and he had beaten him in like three or five, total, like, it would be completely different. But I just don't think that, that Murray really did anything to, to bother him in that match. So so chalk, play- so so adding kind of like the Murray scalp to kind of the, the Wawrinka legend just doesn't seem accurate to me. Okay. That's all for the first half of our U.S. Open episode, folks. Stay tuned for episode 55B later this week. To keep up with the show when you're not actually listening to it, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash ncrpodcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at ncr underscore tennis. And you can also leave us reviews on iTunes. Do that and we'll be very happy. And we'll be very happy to bring you episode 55 be shortly. As always, thanks for listening. Have a good one. Bye, guys. Mm-hmm.